Hello, and you are listening to EcoJustice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Welcome. I am Jack Eit. On today's show, Wheat Belly to Supergut, Restoring Our Microbiomes for Personal and Planetary Health. Host Carrie Kim will be interviewing Dr. William Davis, author of the books Wheat Belly, Undoctored, and Supergut. Dr. William Davis is a cardiologist and New York Times number one best-selling author of the Wheat Belly book series. He is medical director and founder of the Infinite Health Program, including the Infinite Health Inner Circle. He is chief medical officer and co-founder of Realize Therapeutics Corporation, that is developing innovative solutions for the disruptive human microbiome and author of the book, Supergut, a four-week plan to reprogram your microbiome, restore health, and lose weight. Aloha, this is Carrie Kim. Listeners, we are thrilled to bring on esteemed guest, Dr. William Davis, renowned cardiologist, health advocate, and author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Wheat Belly, and now Supergut, a book devoted to restoring our microbiomes and our health. We thank the Tongva ancestors for their enduring presence, legacy, stewardship, and profound connection to this area. Our show comes to you from the ancestral homelands of the Tongva and all of their relatives. We encourage listeners to actively align with and support the many Native nations of Turtle Island, wherever you live and beyond. According to the USDA, wheat ranks third after corn and soybeans with regard to acreage, production, and farm receipts, and is grown on some 35 to 37 million acres. Since its peak in 1981, wheat is now declining in acreage, down some 45 million acres, which is perhaps the good news. The average wheat farm is 1,000 acres and highly industrialized. As of 2020, some 150 different pesticides and herbicides were commonly sprayed on winter and spring wheat. Given the industrial scale of corn, soy, wheat, and cotton crops, Heavy chemical usage of pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides has been the norm. In 1958, diabetes roughly affected 1.6 million people. That figure has skyrocketed now to 36 million people in 2023. Dr. Davis is here to share how eliminating wheat and restoring our gut microbiomes are the means by which we might reclaim our personal, collective, and ecosystem health. Welcome, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. You know, your commitment to the messages of Wheat Belly and now Super Gut have been indispensable for human health. You've been on the front lines of health for decades now and have helped countless thousands of people reclaim their health and reverse or eradicate disease conditions. It's an imperative to understand this link between modern wheat, grains, or microbiomes, public and planetary health. You published Wheat Belly in 2011, and then went on to create the Wheat Belly series, including cookbooks and wheat tea talks programs. What was your original intent with the book? Surprisingly, this all got started because I just wanted to help people not have heart attacks. (laughs) (laughs) So my mom had a coronary angioplasty. Mm -hmm. And four months later, a a successful procedure in -hmm. New Jersey, where I grew up, and four months later was found dead of sudden cardiac death. And I was doing heart procedures in Wisconsin at the time. But it was an eye-opening event, Carrie, in that it became clear that trying to manage a disease as dangerous and as sudden Mm -hmm. as coronary disease in all its Mm -hmm. various forms, like heart attack and sudden cardiac death, was really a pointless thing. 
because right. half the people, you've heard these statistics, half the people who have a heart attack, for instance, don't survive right. to get to the hospital. So trying to do, take care of everything in the hospital is really an awful way to do it. So mm -hmm. I asked this question, what could I have done for my mom and similar people? Right. Two years, three years, five years before those kinds of catastrophes occur. And so I set myself on that mission. And one of the things I did was look for better predictors. And, uh, and there, there are better predictors, by the way, such as CT heart scans and coronary calcium scores. That's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But it became clear that this idea of cut saturated fat and reduced cholesterol was a fool's errand. It was complete, right. utter nonsense. <laughs> no, it's still the prevailing opinion today. And it mm -hmm. should have been discarded 30 or 40 years ago. Better mm -hmm. methods have been available for many, many years, decades, in fact. Mm -hmm. One of the mm -hmm. things you learn with coronary disease is that a major driving factor is not saturated fat. It's not total fat. It's not bacon. It's mm -hmm. wheat, grains, and sugars. And this, by the way, is based on very solid science. A lot of it from California institutions like mm -hmm. Dr. Ron Krause, UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And 30 years ago, he right. published some of the initial science showing that consumption of wheat grains and sugar. By the way, it's the amylopectin A, mm -hmm. carbohydrate unique to wheat and grains. That is the driver. So mm -hmm. one of the things you see when you do more advanced testing to identify the causes of heart disease and discard this nonsense about cholesterol. Right. And you look at the particles that cause heart, heart disease. Mm -hmm. You see that something called small LDL particles right. are the driver of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So I asked, what, what causes this? What Dr. Ron Krauss and other people's work at Hopkins and University mm -hmm. of Texas told us, wheat grains and sugars. So I asked people to remove wheat grains and sugars. And I mm -hmm. saw some measures of small LDL drop to the floor. Uh -huh. But I also saw people say things like this. I didn't know I was going to lose 47 pounds. You didn't tell me. You didn't tell me to lose eight inches off my waist and I'd have to stop three blood pressure medicines that my eczema and psoriasis would go away and that my ulcerative colitis would be dramatically better. So I stumbled for purposes of coronary risk right. to a world. Now, of course, I asked, why Why is this? Why would, I, would removing the food advocated by all agencies, all doctors, all dietitians, why would removing it yield unexpected and dramatic health effects. And that's why I started to ask, well, what happened to wheat mm -hmm. and related grains that will allow these phenomena to emerge in our time? And you dove down that rabbit hole pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't want your listeners to interpret this to mean that traditional strains of wheat are safe for you, but they're clearly much less harmful. And what we have today as bagels or bread or pasta is a completely different thing. It's an 18 to 24 inch tall, high yield semi-dwarf strain, they say. It looks very different, has a thick stalk, large seeds, large seed head. And the change in appearance is accompanied mm -hmm. by dramatic changes in the genetics and biochemistry. It is completely different than what your mom or grandma had, say 50 years ago. So mm -hmm. it's this new, new strain of high yield semi-dwarf wheat, and it's right. very different. And a lot of the adverse effects have been amplified. So mm -hmm. one of the things, for instance, is the gliadin protein. People say gluten, but it's the gliadin protein within right. gluten that is the culprit for many of these problems. They mm -hmm. changed the structure of the gliadin protein and amplified its appetite-stimulating effects. Right. Gliadin protein is indigestible or largely indigestible to humans. We just don't have the enzymes to break it down because they're the seeds of grasses. Humans are not adapted to consuming grasses. Mm -hmm. So this gliadin protein digested down to four or five amino acid lung peptides crossing mm -hmm. into the brain. And this is research, by the way, from the NIH, National <laughs> Institutes of Health. It's not my speculation. Yes. They bind to opioid receptors where they amplify appetite. They stimulate appetite. That's what, that was one change. Another, among the many changes introduced into this new strain of wheat, mm -hmm. was an increase in the content of wheat germ agglutinin. It sounds like gluten, but it's unrelated that way. It's mm -hmm. called agglutinin because it agglutinates or clots blood right. when it contacts blood. Mm -hmm. And so but farmers love wheat germ agglutinin because it's a great pest resistant uh, compound. Uh -huh. it, it wards off insects and molds on their wheat plants. So they chose strains, amplified and uh, crossbred strains for increased wheat germ agglutinin, not mm -hmm. recognizing that wheat germ agglutinin is known to be a very potent bowel toxin. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's some other changes introduced. So what, and, and the effort to increase yield per acre, that was their goal. It wasn't to toy with us. It was right. increased yield per acre. They did succeed. Yield per acre has gone up dramatically since 1960. Nice. But they inadvertently amplified the toxicity of the, of the wheat plant. Mm-hmm. Well, the message of wheat belly is as relevant as when you first conceived the book. And what else do listeners need to really know about modern wheat? I mean, I know you had mentioned that you didn't want people to even think that ancient wheat, for example, einkorn, the non-hybridized wheat is beneficial. But I know some people would like to probably argue that or or say, oh, sprout, sprout the wheat and, uh, you know, organic wheat. But what are the problems with thinking that even einkorn is more beneficial or, or something that you could continue to consume? Well, I encourage everybody to think clearly. If something is less bad, <laughs> make it good. So so <laughs> what happened to the original humans in the Middle East mm-hmm. who consumed einkorn, the, the ancient ancestral 14 chromosome form of wheat? By the way, modern wheat is a 42 chromosome plant. It's completely different. Mm-hmm. So what happened to those humans who first turned? Well, what's remarkable about that is before people can be turned to consumption of wheat and other grains, there are other grains too, like millet and maize, of course, in Central America and mm-hmm. rice in Southeast Asia. Well, mm-hmm. what were the people like before that who were hunter-gatherers and not agriculturalists? Right. Well, they hunted and gathered. They killed animals, ate their organs, ate their meat, fish, shellfish, underground root vegetables, berries, etc. There was almost no tooth decay. People are surprised to hear that, that one to 3% of all teeth recovered from that era showed evidence of decay, tooth loss, abscess, and misalignment. Mm -hmm. Despite, so tooth decay, uncommon, despite the lack of fluoridated toothpaste, toothbrushes, (laughs) dental floss, dentists, orthodontists. (laughs) (laughs) When grain, wheat and grains were adopted, first wild, then, then, then farmed. Mm-hmm. About 10,000 years ago, there was an right. explosion in tooth decay. 16 to 49% of all teeth recovered showed cavity formation decay, abscess formation, tooth loss, and misalignment. There was a doubling of knee arthritis, and there's a, a marked amplification of mineral deficiencies, especially mm-hmm. iron deficiency. You can mm-hmm. see that in the bony record, it's called parotid hyperostosis and other patterns in bones. Mm-hmm. And that's, by the way, due to the phytates in grains, mm-hmm. something called phytates in grains that bind minerals. Mm-hmm. And so if you ate, let's say something, let's say a sandwich with turkey turkey breast, mm-hmm. that the phytates in the, in the bread will bind all, all the iron or most of the iron in your bowels and you pass it out in the toilet. And that's why mm-hmm. iron deficiency anemia, big cause for iron deficiency anemia is grain consumption. Mm. Now, the phytate, like wheat germaglutinin, farmers and agricultural scientists have increased the content of phytates because it's also pest resistant. Right. Not recognizing that it causes flagrant mineral deficiencies, specifically mm-hmm. iron, zinc, magnesium, mm-hmm. calcium, and others. Mm-hmm. So we're told often that consumption of grains is absolutely required for mm-hmm. nutrients and for fiber. The opposite is true. That is not true. In fact, grain consumption causes numerous deficiencies. Mm-hmm. I think the mineral deficiencies is something that people largely don't know. I mean, I think there's a, a large feeling that oh, what you have brought to light with wheat, wheat belly, a lot of that information is basically suppressed. I know how you likened it to the tobacco industry and the same thing that happened with cigarettes and nicotine. Yes, there's a lot of money at stake here. <laughs> a lot of money in the meat industry, in the food industry. You know, it, it, in the 1980s, we started to see that virtually all processed foods had wheat, corn, or soy in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is it because it's cheap? Is it just because it's cheap filler? Or I speculate that people in big food, you know, when big food releases a new product, they don't do so blindly. They, t- they test it. Mm-hmm. They get a bunch of people, typically housewives, who come into their laboratory and taste the food and give Feedback. I've got to believe that the change in the gliadin protein of wheat in the 1980s that was associated with the marked amplification of appetite mm-hmm. had to be recognized by the big food companies who test their foods. And mm-hmm. I got to believe they saw that incessant hunger was mm-hmm. a byproduct of consumption of the new forms of wheat. Could you talk a little bit in your book? You 
speak about the opioid receptor and a little bit more about this addictive quality of wheat? And because that was really shocking to understand that, but maybe you could explain that to listeners. Yeah. So um, if you eat an egg mm-hmm. or a pork chop or mm-hmm. some other source of protein, your body has the digestive apparatus to break it down into single amino acids and that converts it to skin and liver and heart muscle and all the thing, all the components of the body. Mm-hmm. You eat the gliadin protein of wheat. And by the way, wheat germ gluten completely impervious to human digestion. <laughs> but the gliadin protein is partly digestible. It's broken down to four or five amino acid uh, long peptides, mm-hmm. but small enough to cross into the brain and bind to the opioid receptor. They'll make you high. Mm-hmm. They stimulate appetite. But in people who have susceptibilities, that has other effects. So in people with paranoid schizophrenia, oh. it, it, it provokes delusions, paranoid delusions, and auditory hallucinations, hearing voices. In children with autism and ADHD, it provokes behavioral outbursts and abbreviates their attention span even more than they were experiencing. In people with binge eating disorder and bulimia, it provokes 24-hour-day food obsessions and on and on. In other words, the gliadin-derived opioid peptides, yes, are appetite stimulants, but they're also psychoactive peptides. They have a variety of effects. What's dramatic about this is once people realize this, and say somebody with, let's say, binge eating disorder, recognize this and they stop, I'll get this all the time. They'll say things like, for the first time in 25 years, mm-hmm. I no longer have 24-hour day food obsessions. Yeah. And you won't find me sitting in front of the refrigerator at 3 a.m. binging and then running to the toilet to stick my finger down my throat. That all stopped with the elimination of glide-and-drive opioid peptides. But you can imagine, if big food and other food industries have access to a food, to an appetite stimulant, they will put it to good use. Now, the only way we're going to find proof of that, Carrie, is if, as you point out, we sue them in a class action suit mm-hmm. and get their internal documents. So they won't share it with us till that happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, hopefully that does happen. <laughs> we never know. You know, I, I love that you speak about how it, on this continent in the 40s and early 50s, obesity was largely unheard of. People had flat stomachs. You know, as of 2023, 36% of Americans are considered obese. Would you say it was really the late, I know you had mentioned about in the 1980s, everything, all the fast foods had wheat, corn, soy in it. And I'm sure we could see that track of the increase in obesity tracking right alongside the addition of, of these items in the food and this prevalence of, you know, the peak of wheat at 1981. So what do you have to say about this rise in obesity? Because it is phenomenal and shocking. You know, it's multiple factors, of course, not just wheat, but as you point out, the proliferation of fast food who love grains because they're cheap filler, but also it coincides with the emergence of dietary guidelines from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the USDA, because there was just a small group of people who believe that cutting saturated fat was absolutely necessary to reduce cardiovascular risk. That was, by the way, that was not based in science. It was based on their belief. Mm. And it was a handful of people, but it became codified into dietary guidelines, cut your fat, cut your saturated fat, eat more grains, everything in moderation, all the messages we're all familiar with. And that released in 1977 also coincides perfectly with the rise in obesity. Now you can't prove cause and effect with that kind of parallel curves, but it, it, I believe it is at least likely that the dietary guidelines that encourage reduction of fat, when you reduce fat, mm-hmm. it leaves you hungry. And <laughs> you have to compensate for that. Right. And most people compensate with some kind of grain or sugar product. Mm-hmm. So that was a big contributor. The predatory practices of food companies, also, especially big food companies, mm-hmm. where they're going to sell you things that are uh, addictive, that have a, other addictive components like sugar and salt. Mm-hmm. Not to say salt is bad, but in this context, it can be. Right. Uh, and so we have many vicious cycles running here. Mm-hmm. And all we have to do is go to local Walmart to see the, the result that Americans are astoundingly obese. Mm-hmm. It's not just about appearance and self-esteem. It's also about the numerous health consequences. And this is a very costly experiment also. And of course, you know, it's really brought to a head with the emergence of these crazy, ridiculous GLP-1 agonists, mm-hmm. these drugs like Wegovy and Ozempic. Mm-hmm. Somebody pays, say, $15,000 mm-hmm. to lose 30 pounds. 
Mm. Uh, you lose weight by those drugs, about 10 pounds of that, 30 pounds, about a third is muscle. And muscle is the primary driver of basal metabolic rate, your calorie burn rate. So a woman, let's say, pays $15,000 to lose 30 pounds. Most people can't afford to do that indefinitely. They stop the drug. She regains about 27 pounds, almost all of which is fat. And she is less healthy at the end of that experience than she was at the start. But guess who lined their pockets? The pharmaceutical industry got rich based on this. It's anticipated to be $150 billion a year. I'm shocked that the FDA approved those drugs without an insistence on long-term outcomes because it's looking as if people who lose weight by that method as a solution to misguided dietary guidelines, Mm -hmm. it looks like these people incur far greater healthcare costs Mm -hmm. or more likely to become pre-diabetic and diabetic or more prone to coronary disease, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cognitive decline, dementia, and other health problems at the end of their drug use with these drugs. And so it's essentially a tax on the U.S. taxpayer with the money going into big pharma. And exactly. William, uh, Bill, we're going to take a break right here and we'll be back in just a moment to talk more about the visual fat of wheat belly. Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco-Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sunday at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco-Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits. We encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you're listening to Wheat Belly to Super Gut, restoring our microbiomes for personal and planetary health with host Carrie Kim and guest Dr. William Davis, author of the books Wheat Belly, Undoctored, and Super Gut. We're back with Dr. William Davis, author of Wheat Belly and Super Gut. And Bill, could you speak, we've been talking about fat, and you were just talking about this one example of people who are trying to lose weight using these certain pharmaceutical drugs and the outcomes of that. But what about the visceral fat of wheat belly? Why is belly fat a significant marker? What is it signifying about health? So when people are overweight or obese, the real source of health problems is in so-called abdominal visceral fat. That, all that means is the fat that encircles abdominal organs, fat that encircles liver, small intestine, colon, spleen, kidneys, et cetera. Uh, the fat in your buttocks or thighs or neck or chest, it might be unsightly. You might not like it. It might be uh, stressed to your weight-bearing joints, but it doesn't have metabolic implications. It doesn't raise your blood sugar, blood pressure, for instance. So the source of almost most of the health problems associated with overweight and obesity Come, originates with the fat in the abdomen. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to lose weight, we want to use methods that specifically target that abdominal visceral fat, and it gives you greater health benefits. And the subcutaneous, the other sources of fat, like buttocks and thighs, will be lost faster. Mm-hmm. But most methods of weight loss, so if you cut calories, you know, move more, eat less, that nonsense, or use one of those drugs, or even mm-hmm. undergo a bariatric procedure, those are better at losing subcutaneous fat. Mm-hmm. And they virtually all guarantee loss of muscle, which thereby guarantees that you regain the weight. Mm-hmm. So you may have paid you know, $15,000 for your Wegovy or, or Ozempic only to regain that weight. So you just blew a bunch of money and had your health deteriorate. And likewise, the bariatric procedures, these are not benign procedures. And it is the rule that you regain at least some of the weight, and by the way, have other forms of health deterioration. So the conventional solutions are awful. So a a smarter way is let's focus on strategies, very easy to adopt, by the way, that specifically target abdominal visceral fat. You get greater health benefits like reduction in and a risk for heart disease and high blood pressure and insulin resistance and blood sugar and accelerates loss of the subcutaneous fat and other areas. Mm-hmm. Well, all of this is, is, is absolutely vital information for people to have, especially when we just, like we've said, you just look around and you see this rampant obesity, obesity in children. I mean, all these things we know 
in our gut that this is not a right way of living, of course. You know, and then many people give up wheat or have given up wheat, but then they consume or replace the wheat with gluten-free foods. And I wonder if you could speak a bit more about the problems with this whole gluten-free parade that's going on in food. It's a cruel joke, isn't it, Carrie? So we know that wheat, wheat products, because of the amylopectin A, raises blood sugar higher than almost all other foods. When you raise blood sugar really high after, say, a bagel or pasta, you also provoke insulin. And that's the process that leads to insulin resistance that grows abdominal visceral fat and leads to type 2 diabetes and heart disease and dementia, et cetera. Well, so foods that raise blood sugar and thereby insulin create this process. So wheat's at the top of the list. Of, is there anything worse? Yes, cornstarch, rice flour, tapioca starch, and potato flour. Gluten-free flours. Yeah, that's what I say. It's almost like a cruel joke. People say, oh, I went gluten-free, but I gained 30 pounds. <laughs> I'm now a type 2 diabetic. And my, my waist increased by six inches. Well, that's because you turned, once again, when we rely on industry, to teach us how to eat, they steer us down the path of their profitability, not down the path of health. Mm-hmm. So we, it's okay to be gluten-free, just don't consume those gluten-free processed foods made with those four flours. And the reason they raise blood sugars, they also have other starches like amylopectins. Mm-hmm. And when you reduce them to a fine flour, you increase surface area for digestion exponentially, hugely, and it raises blood sugars sky high. So a gluten-free, say, bread or pancake mix or bagel made with gluten-free flours raises blood sugar higher than anything else known, including table sugar. Mm-hmm. I and thought, you, yes, and including wheat. I thought you said that it's even higher than wheat, the way mm-hmm. it's which is just, it's just incredible. I mean, I didn't actually realize that too. I was eating gluten-free crackers, these types of things. I don't eat those things anymore. I mean, I think everyone really needs to be vigilant, hyper-vigilant on reading ingredients because you'll find that in all, you walk down the chip or cracker aisle, it's going to be in every single food, just about. Very, very hard to avoid. And I don't know if you also consider tapioca syrup the same as tapioca flour, you know, because I see that also in the ingredients a lot too is, you know, tapioca syrup. You know, Americans have become so insulin resistant. That is, all that means is if we took, let's say, a nice slender uh, premenopausal woman who likes to go jogging <laughs> and we got her <laughs> fasting insulin blood level, it'll be something like one or two yeah. micro units. What if you took a woman who's 176 pounds, has a waist size of 37 inches, her insulin, her fasting insulin is going to be more like 90 mm-hmm. or 110. It's not like a 10% worse, 20, it's like a hundred fold worse. Mm-hmm. So that's because her body's not responding to insulin, insulin resistance mm-hmm. and, and high levels of insulin drive insulin resistance and drive the, the accumulation of abdominal visceral fat. And then that all cascades, gets worse and worse, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. And so what we do is we follow a lifestyle in which we don't raise blood sugar. And so one of the things we have to do, well, we should never count calories. I should make that clear. Never count calories. Never count fat grams. Never count saturated fat grams. Never count protein grams. The only thing we do count is net carbs only because two-thirds of the American public is now insulin resistant, including children. Mm-hmm. And so the, one of the quickest ways to unwind that process is to not consume foods that raise blood sugar and thereby insulin. And those are largely carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. I, could you explain net carbs? Because I think people may not understand what that is. And people don't always, they just look at sugar content, then they skip the carbohydrate content. I think it's important for people to understand that distinction. Yeah, there's a flaw in nutritional panels, and that is they lump because fibers, whether it's cellulose fiber, or other forms of fiber, is biochemically a chain of sugars. We don't think of fiber. You know, when we have, if you had a brand cereal, you don't think of that as, as a, a chain of sugars, but it is. All fibers, by definition, are chains of sugar. And so in a nutritional panel, fibers are, are listed as a carbohydrate. So what we have to do is take the total carbohydrates and subtract the fiber. And that gives us so-called net carbs. Mm-hmm. And because the fibers don't get turned into blood sugar or insulin. And so we can, it's kind of a gimme, right? We can subtract it. 
-hmm. and that gives you so-called net carb. And what we try to do is try to stay below. We are not ketogenic, by the way. That's a that's a whole other uh, issue because mm -hmm. uh, that ketogenic has its positives and has some very serious negatives. But we're not personally ketogenic. But we towed the line of ketosis by limiting ourselves to 15 grams net carbs. That came, by the way, from my experience in thousands of people, mm -hmm. as well as the science, mm -hmm. in showing that when you cross that line, when you go to higher than 15 grams net carbs, let's say 25 grams, mm -hmm. or or even worse, eat something like oatmeal, which is sky high in net carbs, mm -hmm. you provoke formation of small LDL particles mm -hmm. and you increase cardi cardiovascular risk. And when you think about this, Carrie, so diets that tell us cut fat and saturated fat, eat more healthy whole grains, cause heart disease and you know, diabetes. And they'll be high carb generally, right? Speaking. Higher, yes. And sometimes extraordinarily so. When you say 15 grams net carb, you're talking about per anything that you eat. Per meal or per de digestive period. Yeah. And that, if you stick to that, you don't provoke formation of small LDL particles the real cause of heart disease where everyone's so focused on oh they're ldl bad cholesterol which is we really should have rejected we should have uh, uh rejected all that stuff 30 40 years ago ldl cholesterol is a fictitious number it's not a real number if you ever look at your cholesterol panel you'll see ldl cholesterol in parentheses calculated mm -hmm. now the calculation anybody can do math but what mm -hmm. if the calc the equation is deep what are the assumptions built into forming the equation are so deeply flawed mm -hmm. that, and, and when you change your diet by doing such things as cutting fat and or cutting carbs, you invalidate the equation. It's called the Friedewald calculation. You invalidate that equation. And so your doctor is treating a wildly inaccurate, fictitious number that is extremely poor predictor of heart disease. Yet it is the mantra of all my practicing colleagues that they treat your LDL cholesterol with statin drugs. Now these mm -hmm. other absurd drugs that have almost right. no beneficial effects. Right. It seems like it always comes, it comes in a three pack before you know it, you're on the blood thinner, you're on, you know, three to five medications at once. It seems big food, big pharma, big medicine. They all are kind of in bed together. We know. But, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Bill, you've spoken about, you know, we have talked about gluten and then you've talked about all, all the other deleterious things in wheat, but you've also mentioned that the hybridization of wheat is even more problematic than the genetic modification. Did you talk about that? Why is this so? So the defense that the grain industry threw at me a few years back was that Davis says wheat is genetically modified and it's not. They're right. But that's the fuzzy terminology of agribusiness. That is genetic modification means genetic engineering where you insert or delete a gene. And modern commercial wheat has not been subjected to those. That has been, but it's not become commercially available. Mm -hmm. Instead, they used the methods of, as you point out, hybridization, crossing various strains. But even worse, they use the methods of mutagenesis. All mm -hmm. that means, I'm going to suggest, I'm going to uh, expose wheat seedlings or embryos, plants have these things too, to X-ray, gamma radiation, or toxic compounds to induce mutations. <clears throat> now you can't expose, let's say it was the embryo of a human or a chimpanzee or a frog or wheat. You can't expose it to a compound or radiation and select the mutations. So what they do is they do hundreds of experiments inducing dozens of mutations. Mm -hmm. But as long as it looks and tastes like wheat and pr produces the characteristic they want, mm -hmm. they'll commercialize it. <clears throat> and so when you use those methods that predate genetic modification, mm -hmm. these methods of mutagenesis, you right. actually provoke a greater number of mutations, some of which may be harmless, some of which may be very harmful. Mm -hmm. And so that's a method that was used prior to the age of gen gen genetic modification. But it was a defense used by the grain industry. They said, Dave. This is wrong. No, wheat has been genetically modified. Not telling you, it's been subjected to worse methods for many years, the methods of mutagenesis. I think you said it was something like 50 years of experiments that were completely not regulated. Is that correct? And that continues to, to, to be true today. It's largely, if you introduce some kind of dramatic change into your crop, regardless whether it's wheat or parsnips or whatever it is, there is no mandate for human safety testing. Now, there's got to be some restraint. You can't have to test everything you change. But even with the dramatic 
changes introduced specifically into the wheat plant in, in, in good cause. It was meant to solve the world's hunger. It wasn't meant to mess with people's lives. But they made such drastic changes, never asking, are these changes, does it remain appropriate for human consumption? If they had, they would have seen all the unusual physiologic uh, consequences of the change they introduced. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the health effects from wheat and these grains, I mean, actually, also, you've spoken about that people will also turn to rye as an alternative to wheat, but you've also equated, could you speak about rye and wheat? that rye is just as equally bad as wheat. <laughs> so anybody who's had rye bread or rye toast will say that's not the same as wheat. Tastes different, smells different. But rye evolved as a weed in wild wheat fields. And people don't think of wheat grains this way, but they're quite promiscuous. They exchange mm -hmm. genes, genetics, <laughs> quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So grains are swingers. They exchange genes all the time. Yeah. And so rye, is nearly identical in the same way that if we compared, this sounds awful, of course, but if we compare the genetic code of a chimpanzee mm -hmm. to a homo sapiens, they're almost indistinguishable. There's about 98% correspondence. Mm -hmm. There's a couple percent difference. Same thing here, but rise even closer than that, mm -hmm. than a chimpanzee is to humans. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the adverse effects, like the gliadin protein in wheat, there's a sequel in rye, but it's almost identical. Wheat German gluten is in rye. Amylopectin A is in rye. Phytates are in rye. So, it, yeah, it looks and smells different, but it, for all practical purposes, it's the same. Same effects, yeah. And then, of course, people will, I'm sure, say things in defense of wanting to eat sourdough bread and thinking that somehow that's going to mitigate against the negative health impacts of wheat. But I, maybe if you could just address that, because I'm sure that there's someone out there thinking that right now. <laughs> You know, I, I call sourdough fermentation the low-tar cigarette of the, <laughs> of the cigarette world. So <clears throat> if I take a if I take tobacco and reduce the tar content and maybe put a filter on it, mm -hmm. is it now healthy? Right. No, of course it causes heart disease and abdominal aortic aneurysms and lung cancer and COPD. So if I if I disable some of the phytates. Mm -hmm. reduce some of the germaglutinin content and reduce some of the gliadin content and amylopectin as fermentation does microbes who ferment mm -hmm. it's still it's still they're still there right. to a substantial degree mm -hmm. so if it's less bad should we interpret less bad as meaning good no it's just less bad so exactly exactly what it is you know so bill if you could talk about how you went from wheat belly into your latest book super gut this extensive deep dive into the gut microbiome so, Carrie, I saw extraordinary successes in turning people's health around, just with the basic concepts of wheat belly and its follow-on undoctored, where it was basically just removing wheat grains and sugars, addressing common nutrients that are lacking in modern life, like magnesium, because we filter drinking water, and we, and we need magnesium, iodine, because people have forgot that iodine is a basic need for all humans, and iodine deficiency was rampant up until we had iodized salt. So adding back some omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D. And, I, and basic efforts, the basic programs had basic efforts at recultivating a healthy microbiome. High-potency, multi-species probiotic, fermented foods, and prebiotic fibers to nourish microbes. So we did all that. I saw extraordinary things happen. But what I saw was a good number of people said things like this. All right, I lost 73 pounds on the program. But I hit a plateau and I have 35 more to go. I'm stuck. Yeah. Or I was a type 2 diabetic. My hemoglobin A1C was 11.7%. I got off all the diabetes medications. Now my hemoglobin A1C is 6.1. So it's much better. But I'm still in the pre-diabetic range. And I'm stuck. In other words, I saw people develop tremendous improvements, but then stop or plateau. And I asked, what is, what's, what's missing here? So I started to look for microbiome explanations for it. And Carrie, I found them and they're mm -hmm. extraordinary. And so what I'm seeing now is full restoration of health for almost all the people, maybe not 100%, but damn close, for right. all the people who hit plateaus in one measure or another. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things, so there are a number of important lessons to take from all that, but one of the lessons I learned, and I was very skeptical that this, this was true, was mm -hmm. that... Most modern people have infested their small intestine. Most of the microbes in your GI tract are supposed to be in the colon. 
mm-hmm. and they're supposed to be diminishing, sharply diminishing numbers as you ascend into the 24 feet of small intestine. So mm-hmm. there's this condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, we say. And I mm-hmm. thought it was rare. The turning point for me, though, was I even said that in my early books, SIBO is uncommon until <laughs> <laughs> until this consumer device came out. It's called AIR. I'm sorry, I'm not in my office right now, but I will show you my, my device. It's called AIR, A-I-R-E, made by a company called Food Marble, invented by an Irish scientist, PhD engineer in Dublin, Ireland. He invented it for his wife because mm-hmm. she had irritable bowel syndrome and was told to go on a low FODMAPS diet, low fiber sugar diet. But he saw that it was easy for her to get tripped up and she'd be experiencing gas and bloating and diarrhea. So he invents this device to measure hydrogen gas on the breath. Because when you get tripped up on those programs, bacteria in your gut produce hydrogen gas. So I got a hold of the device. I called up. I said, Angus, mm-hmm. what this is really is a mapping device. It tells you where microbes are living in your gastrointestinal tract. Are they up high? Esophagus, stomach, duodenum? Or are they where they're supposed to be in the colon? And so I had a whole bunch of people testing, hundreds now, thousands testing with this device. And Carrie, what shocked me was it was the unusual person who tested negative. Now, you might say, well, maybe the device is flawed. Maybe the concept is flawed. But what happened is this. So people would, it's a zero to 10 scale of hydrogen gas on the breath. And the sooner you produce it, the higher up microbes are. After you Uh, consume some of that microbes. Yeah, we consume something like inulin that microbes like to consume. And if you blow hydrogen gas, let's say within 30 minutes, those microbes are way up high, not in the colon 24 feet down. So people are testing and they're all testing 9, 10, 8.5. And then we do something to push back those microbes. And they're most, by the way, fecal microbes in the small intestine. E. coli, salmonella, proteus, pseudomonas. These are fecal microbes. We do something to push them down. They test 1.2 or 2.1. And they say, and I finally broke my weight loss plateau. My hemoglobin A1C finally dropped from 6.1 to 4.7%. My depression finally lifted. My psoriasis finally went away completely. In other words, we saw the residual health problems that persisted despite doing all those things with diet and nutrients. We saw the residual health problems disappear with resolution of the SIBO as evidenced by the correction of hydrogen gas. So what were you having them do to help push back the fecal microbes from the migration upward? What were you having? You know, so you may know that the conventional solution, well, the the conventional practitioner says something like this, Carrie, did you consult Dr. Google again? There's nothing (laughs) wrong with you. We did your colonoscopy. We didn't see anything. They say all the stupid things that my colleagues love to say because because my colleagues are much more interested in talking to the sexy sales rep mm-hmm. rather than reading the science. And the science is abundant and clear. This is a this is an epidemic. Mm-hmm. So, but if you talk to a conventional practitioner who did know something about this, they would say, "Here, here's a prescription for rifaximin or zyfaxin. Mm-hmm. It's an mm-hmm. antibiotic." Well, you know, part of the reason we're here is the overuse of antibiotics. Right. So I'm very reluctant to suggest another antibiotic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I use this simple rationale, Carrie. I said, okay, if you have 30 feet of fecal microbes, right? 24 feet, small intestine, four to five feet colon. You have mm-hmm. 30 feet fecal microbes. What if you took a commercial off the shelf probiotic? Will this correct it? No, it will maybe reduce bloating a little bit or reduce diarrhea a little bit but you're still left with 30 feet of fecal microbes. So I asked these questions. What if we chose species of bacteria, probiotic species that colonize the small intestine? That's where SIBO occurs. Mm -hmm. And what if we chose species that produce what are called bactericins? These are natural antibiotics effective against fecal microbes. So Carrie, I was not very hopeful this was going to work. I said, let's just try it. We're going to ferment it as a kind of yogurt. It's not yogurt. Nothing right. like the stuff in the store. But we ferment it using prolonged fermentation to get hundreds of billions of counts. Very easy. Mm-hmm. We consume a half cup per day. And to my great surprise, I did not expect this. Of the 40 or so people who've done this, 90% have converted to hydrogen gas negative and enjoyed 
the improvements in health that we wanted. Amazing. Well, we're going to talk more about SIBO and CIFO in just a moment. We'll take a short break here, Bill, and come right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying EcoJustice Radio. We air every Friday at 4 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and Sunday at 4 p.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to EcoJustice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Wheat Belly to Super Gut, restoring our microbiomes for personal and planetary health with host Carrie Kim, and guest Dr. William Davis, author of the books Wheat Belly, Undoctored, and Supergut. So, Bill, we, we were talking about SIBO, and actually we haven't addressed CIFO. If you could maybe speak about, well, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth we've addressed, and then what about small intestinal fungal overgrowth, and is it as prevalent as SIBO? And is there are you using a similar way to test? I mean, what... What is produced? And I know we were talking about hydrogen gas as an indicator for SIBO, but what about CIFO and fungal overgrowth? Yeah. So Carrie, as you likely know, CIFO or even just colonic overgrowth of fungi is just not as well explored as SIBO has been. It's begun, it's starting to yield the better science, but it is to be clear, it's common. It may not be as common as SIBO, by my estimation, conservatively, 150, 160 million people in the U.S., that is about half the population have SIBO easily. Not my speculation, by the way. This, if you look at the science and add up the numbers, that's what you get. I think that's conservative. Fungal overgrowth, because it's less easy to identify, is probably less common, but it's based on limited science and flawed science. Because the, I wish there was a hydrogen gas type test for SIBO, but there's not. You're left with two different methods. One is to look at stool, mm-hmm. but stool is rectal, right? In other words, if we were to track the composition of stuff going through your gastrointestinal tract from stomach all the way through 24 feet of small intestine, then ascending colon, transverse colon, descending colon, sigma, et cetera, when you get a stool sample, it's largely a rectal sample. It's mm-hmm. not a small bowel sample. It's not a yeah. stomach sample. Mm-hmm. So we have to accept that it's, uh, stool testing is very limited in its reliability. But if you have a lot of high numbers of fungi in your stool, you likely have fungal overgrowth somewhere. Could be colonic, could be small intestine. The other way is not very nice. It's to do an endoscopy and a gastroenterologist retrieves a sample from your duodenum and looks at it for fungal overgrowth. If you have it, you've got it bad because that means it's way up high in the duodenum. Mm-hmm. There's really no, uh, you can do things like candida antibodies. That can be helpful. The problem mm-hmm. with candida antibodies is you can't tell if you have it right now or you had it 20 years ago because mm-hmm. antibodies persist. So there's really no convenient way. One thing I've been doing is looking for can, and this is just, this is my experience. It's not based in good science, uh-huh. is look for evidence of fungal infestation mm-hmm. in other parts of your body. Mm-hmm. If you've got eczema, a lot of eczema is fungal infection of your skin. Mm. You've got eczematous rashes, especially here in the forehead or the sides of the nose, nose or behind the ears or under the breasts or in the groin or in toenails or fingernails. That, I believe, almost always represents systemic fungal infestation. Mm-hmm. You could do a stool test, but what if you test negative? Could you still have it? Probably Right. So right. one one good telltale sign that's been very helpful is sugar cravings. Mm. There's no science behind this. No one's done that trial, but it seems to play out that people who have overwhelming sugar cravings and address fungal overgrowth seem to be relieved of their sugar cravings. So lots of things we we know about fungal overgrowth. Lots of things we don't know about fungal overgrowth. Mm-hmm. What well, was I wonder if you could go back to hydrogen gas because it is shocking to realize that we could be producing that much hydrogen gas internally. And what are really the impacts of that? Obviously people feel that because they may feel bloated and they may have, you know, this constant sensation of bloating that never goes away. But what are the health impacts of that hydrogen gas? Not well charted out. So it's not quite clear what the hydrogen gas itself does. 
it's not huge amounts. It's it's really tiny amounts. So it's probably not like poisonous gas, not that kind of a thing. And I don't think you could power a hydrogen car. With, with <laughs> <laughs> right. So not well charted out. But you, you can appreciate this whole world of breath testing, whether mm-hmm. it's hydrogen gas or methane mm-hmm. and some other gases is an emerging science. And it's very mm-hmm. interesting. The, the, prob- the whole problem with the GI tract is how do you divine what microbes and where they're living in a 30 foot long tube, you know, 30 feet's a long way. And so, and especially the small, the small intestine carry is proven to be one of the most interesting areas of all. And it's the least well explored. It's the North pole of a GI tract, you know, because there's no device that can snake through your small intestine. So one of the great dilemmas in conventional medicine is somebody comes to the hospital, passing red blood, throwing it up or in the toilet. Mm-hmm. And it's not coming from the colon. They can do a colonoscopy. They do an upper endoscopy. It's not coming from the stomach, esophagus, or duodenum. It must be coming from the small intestine. How do you find out where? It's 24 feet long. So you can see that the small intestine is kind of the no man's land of gastrointestinal health. But it's proven to be, because it's been, it's been neglected, a right. very interesting source of health information. As in, for instance, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, and small intestinal fungal overgrowth, CFO, but still lots we don't know. Mm, well, as you said, we need to be repopulating our gut, period. You know, I wanted to see if you could speak a little bit about uh, Roundup, the harmful glyphosate-based herbicide created by Monsanto and heavily used still in the U.S., but it, it was also patented as an antibiotic. Why is this a huge red flag? We talked about the overuse of antibiotics and then this. Yeah, exactly right, Carrie. So Monsanto patented glyphosate, the the active ingredient in Roundup herbicide, used to incredible amounts nowadays. And it has an herbicide effect. But it also, as you point out, was uh, there was patents filed as an antibiotic. The problem with the reason it was never commercialized as an antibiotic is it kills off beneficial microbes and is ineffective against harmful microbes. It's like an anti-antibiotic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kill off like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, helpful species, mm-hmm. and not the E. coli's and salmonellas of the world. So mm-hmm. it essentially selects for fecal microbes. Mm-hmm. And so while we need better science, it's probably one of the major contributors to this epidemic of dysbiosis, disrupted bowel flora composition, and SIBO. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's ubiquitous. If we took 100 Americans and tested their hair, skin, urine, stool, and blood for glyphosate, virtually all will test positive. Mm-hmm. And it's used, of course, in genetically modified, mostly corn and soy, but now it's being more widely used in other produce, as well as a desiccant in wheat. So it's become so ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And while it's, we need better science, it's logic would tell you glyphosate, probably one of the factors that has led to the proliferation of dysbiosis and SIBO, and maybe SIBO. I think that um, Dr. Zach Bush had spoken about that things like lentils and chickpeas are also heavily sprayed with glyphosate, just like wheat. So it's a, it's definitely all these things, the cautionary tales for everybody around food and knowing where your food comes from and what is on your food. Um, you know, here's one bright spot, Carrie. It looks as if there are species of fermenting microbes that we can get that metabolize glyphosate. Mm. Now, we, we we don't know yet. We have not, and others have not performed any of the clinical trials to prove that it's a biologically meaningful reduction. Mm. But at the very least, if your listeners start to subscribe to fermented foods, mm-hmm. such as sauerkraut, fermented sauerkraut, kimchi, fermented meats, fermented veggies, you ferment on your kitchen Nato. counter. <laughs> Nato. The, if they contain the species Lactobacillus plantarum, some of the, some of those some strains of that species consume glyphosate. Oh, that's interesting. We just don't know yet. No one's done that clinical trial to show well, that it's a meaningful effect. Certainly couldn't hurt because we are most people are extremely deficient right in their microbial population. Excellent point. So uh, you know, I regret that that what I told you about how we get rid of SIBO with what I call SIBO yogurt. I regret calling it that because what it really is right. is a way of resupplying, re-implanting very high counts of microbes you should have had all along mm-hmm. from your mom, from being birthed through the vaginal canal and breastfeeding in contact with your mom. And it should persist for a lifetime. 
but maybe we took amoxicillin 20 years ago for an upper respiratory infection and it killed off lactobacillus gasseri, lactobacillus rotori, and other beneficial species. And you've lost, almost everybody's lost these microbes. Mm-hmm. So what we're really doing in this SIBO yogurt is restoring what are called keystone or very important microbes. And mm-hmm. so now I tell people, okay, do the SIBO yogurt for four, four weeks or longer, but then continue it intermittently, twice a week, three times a week for the rest of your life until we figure out a way to implant it permanently. Mm. So maybe in five years or whatever, I say, Carrie, what we do now is we restore rotary and seven other microbes that collaborate and support each other. You only have to do it for whatever, a day, a week, and they take up residence forever, but no one's figured that out yet. But why would you only do it for four weeks and then shrink down to just a couple of times a month? I mean, why wouldn't you just continue or is it just, I mean, why, why not continue at a higher amount? Because we are, I think that when we think about stress killing probiotics, I'm I'm sure we're losing it as fast as we're gaining it. To be honest, it's a hassle. <laughs> and you may say, at some point you may say, hey, I want to make lactobacillus brevis. So I want to be a little smarter, a little quicker on my feet. Or I want to make bacillus coagulants yogurt. Because not only does it make the most delicious yogurt you ever taste, it tastes like whipped cream, but it also reduces joint pain. Or mm-hmm. maybe you say, I want to make bifidobacterium infantis for my, my daughter's child or something like that, because it makes that child smarter, healthier. Uh, in other words, you may want to start getting into other microbes. And so uh, you can mix these microbes. There's no hard and fast rules here. Uh, this is an evolving effort, but uh, we cut back only because of the hassle and want to make room for other interesting projects. And by the way, it doesn't have to be dairy. You can Mm -hmm. ferment other things. We did, uh, ferment with coconut milk. The only thing is there's a couple of additional steps you have to make in coconut milk because it likes to separate. Mm -hmm. You also add guar gum, which is a prebiotic fiber. Mm -hmm. And we also use a blender prior to adding the microbes. So we don't kill the microbes and that makes delicious yogurt. And we did flow cytometry on the regular yogurt, dairy and the coconut milk yogurt. And the coconut milk yogurt is as good as, or even higher counts. Okay. 330 million, uh, sorry, 330 billion Mm. per half cup serving. Last time we did flow cytometry. You know, I wondered if you could speak just a little bit more. You addressed it somewhat, but in talking about the overuse of antibiotics, because we know that newborns and mothers are typically given antibiotics in hospitals and how once you've used, say, like you said, you used it 20 years ago, but that killed off the important microbes in the gut and they are never restored from that point onward. It's not like we spontaneously, that they spontaneously reappear in our gut without actually implanting them. Exactly right, Carrie. So there's regard, there's, of course, legitimate and necessary uses of antibiotics. Problem, there's wild indiscriminate dis- uh, dispensing of antibiotics. So most people by age 40 have taken 30 courses of antibiotics and it's getting worse. Most children are prescribed 13, more than 1,300 prescriptions, antibiotic prescriptions for every 1,000 children every year. So it's wildly overused. And the problem is it's often given for viral infections or just because, oh, you have a fever 102, you don't have pneumonia, you don't have urinary tract infection. Well, give it to you just in case. Right. As you point out, these are the destructive effects on the microbiome are permanent effects. Many of them are permanent effects, such as the eradication of keystone microbes. So it used to be when, you know, my favorite microbe in the world is lactobacillus rotari. Mm-hmm. So when Dr. Gerhard Reuter discovered it in breast milk of a German woman in 1962, he was an academic microbiologist in Germany, and he found it was easy. It was easy to find Reuteri in breast milk and stool and other places in everyday German people. And then as his 40-year career ensued, he found it increasingly difficult. He couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And now almost nobody has it. Even though if we went to the jungles of New Guinea or the Brazilian rainforest or the savannas of East Africa, where indigenous populations unexposed to antibiotics still live, they all have rotary, Carrie. They all have rotary. If we look at the microbiomes of wild living squirrels or moose or deer or wildebeest, 
they all have roitery. <laughs> so we are the exception because we are the ones so orally exposed to antibiotics. And as you point out, once you lose it, it doesn't grow back any more than a pile of oily rags turns into rats, right? <laughs> so you have to reimplant it to restore it. You have to repopulate your gut. So, so Bill, you know, you've also said that what we have, we know, have mass, we've massively changed the composition of the human microbiome. And these evidences are in our teeth, our skin, our intestinal tract, our bowel habits, our overall health. Countless of these microbes have been lost because of our modern lifestyles. And you've mentioned that they don't spontaneously repair, but how do we reclaim that which we do not even know we once had? What sort of research is being done to even trace our collective gut health history? How could we ever know when it's already been lost? How do we begin to restore from that perspective? Million dollar question, Gary. So one, <laughs> of the, <laughs> one of the questions that's been posed is if we compare the gastrointestinal microbiomes of those people, like the Hadza in Tanzania, the Maasai in Kenya, or the Malawi people in East Africa, the people living in the jungles of New Guinea, or the people living in the Brazilian rainforest, or the highlands of Peru, the Matsas. Uh, if we looked at their gastrointestinal microbiomes, they're all very similar to each other, even though they're separated by thousands of miles in oceans, but they're all very different from us. Should we try to reapproximate them? Probably not, because they may be adapted to their environments and we may be more adapted to our environments. The problem is to know, so this is the question they often, microbiologists often ask, what does eubiosis look like? Healthy microbiome. No one really knows for a fact, it's an evolving concept. Mm -hmm. But one of the most important things your listeners can do is to readopt what your great grandmother did, mm -hmm. which is consume fermented foods. Even though fermented foods don't have the microbes you want, they have species like Luganostoc mesenteroides and Pediococcus pentasaceae. You don't necessarily want those populating your gastrointestines, right? But for, for unclear reasons, those microbes in fermented foods somehow open the door to restoration of the healthy microbes, at least some of them. Mm -hmm. So lots and lots of fermented foods like kimchi, kombucha, fermented veggies, a soprasada, on and on. Those are the things we need to go back to. And, the, and these yogurts are your way of specifically targeting sp specific microbial species and strain. Mm -hmm. uh, and, that by the, and that, by the way, is also an extremely powerful strategy. Well, Bill, thank you so much for all that you have done around health, around the microbiome, educating so many people, the deleterious effects of wheat and to get off of wheat and the healthy whole grains. You know, how can listeners stay in contact with you and how can they learn more about restoring their gut microbiome? What are the ways that they can reach you? So a lot of this is laid out in my super gut book. Also, I have a, a busy website called drdavisinfinitehealth.com. <laughs> I have a, several thousand blog posts. We have a very busy discussion forum. There's an area called the Inner Circle in that website. We have a very busy forum, hundreds of thousands of discussions, as well as I do this kind of two-way Zoom, typically once a week, where we talk for a couple hours about these kinds of topics. And, and by the way, also collaborating with each other. We have tons of people, and we're learning new lessons. The pace of discovery, Carrie, is faster and faster and faster because we have these essentially citizen scientists testing yeah. things. They'll tell you new yeah. things yeah. that we learn with these microbes and other, other uh, strategies. Yeah, it'll only keep, continue to grow exponentially. I feel that there's a lot of work being done in this world of, of probiotics and restoration. The inner restoration is also the outer restoration, and that's exactly why we wanted to bring you on the show today. So... Thank well, you so Karen. much, Bill, and so much success. I really hope that as many people pick up super gut as they have wheat belly and that this continues to help heal our own personal health as well as collective health and planetary health. Thanks for having me. And please keep up your terrific work. We will. We absolutely will. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you to our guest, Dr. William Davis. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Wheat Belly to Supergut, Restoring Our Microbiomes for Personal and Planetary Health. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon or visit our website at ecojusticeradio.org. Please connect with us on social media at Ecojustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. And if you like what you've heard and you want others to be informed, 
You know what to do. Subscribe, share the episodes, and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a tax-deductible donation to the show. Project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on KPFK, KPFT, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Executive producer, myself, Jack Eit. Producer and co-host, Jessica Aldridge. Co-host, Carrie Kim. An engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.